Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today is Semantic Threat Researcher Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be taking a look at all the news coming out of this year's RSA Cybersecurity Conference, which Candid was actually at last week. Uh, But before we dive into RSA, let's take a look at something else quickly first. The Swiss government has said that it found and patched a vulnerability in the country's electronic voting system. If exploited by the attacker, the vulnerability would prevent election officials from detecting any unauthorized changes to voters' ballots. So potentially bad if, uh, if it had been found by the bad guys. Fortunately, the vulnerability doesn't appear to have been exploited by attackers because it was discovered in the course of an ongoing penetration test exercise. The exercise began on February 25th when authorities publicly released the e-voting system source code and initiated a public audit intended to identify and patch vulnerabilities. And testing is due to run until March 25th, so it's a month-long exercise. The vulnerability was found in the SVOTE protocol, which was developed by technology provider CITIL and occurred because of a flaw in universal verifiability, that is, mathematical proofs required to prevent voter manipulation. So the vulnerability uh, is uh, verify. sorry, verifiability is employed because the Swiss voting system uses a mechanism that shuffles electronic votes in order to protect voter privacy. And this shuffling process is supposed to encrypt voter data, but also prove that the votes cast before and after the process, the shuffling process are identical. The vulnerability was discovered by a team of researchers from the Open Privacy Research Society, the Catholic University of Leuven and the University of Melbourne, retrospectively, who have described the vulnerability in a paper that was published to coincide with the SFC announcement. Now, the FSC themselves said um, the flaw doesn't allow the system to be penetrated, so uh, it would mean the attacker would have to get onto the system first before it uh, could exploit the vulnerability. And of course, it has been patched now. So, Candid, you were actually Swiss yourself. Um, what do you make of this news? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, being Swiss, I'm obviously interested in the, the whole e-voting system that we have here. Probably should mention that this specific system is not in use yet. Um, so it's not that something could have been happening. And that's probably also kind of the idea of the whole pen test, right? kind of checking it before it's widely adapted and used. Ah, okay. It wasn't exactly clear from the news that it hadn't been rolled out yet. So this is their kind of due, their due diligence on the uh, the system before it's released. Exactly. The government actually made it um, relevant that they have to test it. Although at the moment, 10 cantons out of 26 actually do provide some sort of electronic voting. And four of those use a similar system by the same vendor, but not the vulnerable part. So it's not as bad. Um, and of course, as you said, the vulnerability itself is is not kind of a, let's say, remote code execution or the SQL injection of e-voting. So it's not as easy to manipulate votes with it. It's just easier to hide it. Mm-hmm. Having said that, of course, it kind of undermines the trust for sure. And stuff like this should have been found by internal reviews um, for software like this. So that's a bit the sad thing. Probably working in that industry, you kind of start getting paranoid and you know there's never going to be 100% uh, secure systems, right? But on the other hand, even the the paper voting uh, with ballots is not 100% secure. I mean, I have to trust that no one steals the ballots out of my uh, brief um, post box 
or maybe someone at the actual uh, voting campaign will kind of use my ballot, remove it or just replace it with something else. Okay. And you weren't tempted to uh, take part in this uh, testing exercise yourself? I actually registered myself as well, and I still have about two weeks to go, but I was a bit uh, distracted by RSA, I have to say, so I couldn't really walk through all the uh, source code and kind of try to it. But I mean, for anyone out there who ever wanted to vote in Switzerland, I guess now is your chance. You can actually still subscribe and get your uh, two weeks of voting in Switzerland even though the votes won't really count for anything. Yeah. And that brings us nicely on to our next topic, uh, which is RSA, uh, which was held last week in San Francisco. Uh, it's where people from the entire IT industry can come together and talk about information security. And Candid, you were again there this year. Can you maybe share your experiences with us? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe I should start off with explaining a little bit uh, about the RSA conference and what it's all about. So the conference is actually quite old. Uh, was created about 20 years, 28 years ago, um, with the focus on cryptography, and of course has since grown a lot and changed a lot as well. So um, currently it's held still in San Francisco with the main location, but there are smaller versions held in Europe, Asia, and also the Middle East. The RSA conference offers many IT presentations over about five days. So it's a whole week packed um, with lots of discussions. And in the peak times, there are up to 30 different tracks in parallel. So a lot of IT topics to choose from uh, to kind of decide what you want to see and what you want to discuss afterwards. And of course, there are also a few big keynotes with celebrities and popular panel shows, um, each presenting kind of an aspect of what's happening in this year. And the organizers said there were over 50,000 people attending this year in San Francisco. So quite a lot of people. And besides the normal presentation tracks, of course, there is also the exposition hall, which had about 600 vendors or even a little bit more presenting themselves and their products. And this also includes the early stage expo with new startups and the innovation sandbox, which is always interesting to check out because those are kind of new startups which try to bring in new ideas to the field. And if even if that wouldn't be enough, there's, of course, other various things happening around the conference. So there's a few hands-on seminars. There's the B-Sides conference, which is held on the weekend. And there's various uh, vendor receptions and parties as well. Wow. So definitely an awful lot going on. All right. And if I know you, you were probably packing in as many sessions as possible. So uh, of all of the things you saw, what presentations struck you in particular? Well, yeah, there were many, many different themes visible at the conference. Um, I think one common topic was the human factor or the human impact. And I mean, it's, it's not just kind of one thing, right? There's various degrees and aspects that you can have for the human impact. So stuff like tips on how to prevent insider threats by probably keeping your employees happy, which of course also helps in retaining your workforce talents, um, because that's the thing you have in your company and you want to retain, right? But it is also clear that in today's connected world, trust has become a very important thing. I mean, people need to be able to trust a service or a vendor, right? If they don't trust you to keep your or keep their data safe, then they might just go and use the next service, which is bad for your enterprise. So although having said that, with that many data breaches still happening, 
it kind of seems a little bit that a lot of users have given up or don't care too much. And surprisingly, the long-time consequences for a lot of the businesses are still quite low. I mean, not that many people actually quit their accounts after any of the recent incidents, right? But I guess the desire for trust is still growing, and especially around cloud services, which are quite popular at the moment. So um, various other presentations highlighted something that goes into a similar direction, I would say, the trust in information itself, and of course, how to control the information without censorship. Um, we all heard of fake news, probably seen it ourselves, and it has become quite difficult to actually know if you should trust a news article on the internet or not. It's not always easy and usually takes a lot of time to do your research on your own. So there's a few groups like uh, NewsGuard, for example, which tackle the issue from the journalist's perspective. So they verify background research on news sites and then kind of provide you with a sort of a trust indicator to see if you should trust that news outlet or not. And of course, on the other hand, we have all the service providers of social networks like Twitter, Facebook, and so on that fight any fake bot accounts. Um, just as an example, last week, Facebook actually removed again hundreds of accounts that were operated by two uh, separate disinformation operation groups, which were targeting the UK and Romania. So by shutting down these accounts, they are consequently shutting down the news amplifier or at least slowing it down, which definitely helps as well. And I'd say with events such as the 2020 Olympics uh, Games in Tokyo or the next US presidential election on the horizon, tackling propaganda, disinformation and fake news is a very important topic. But unfortunately, it's also not a simple one to solve. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not an easy task to solve it. I mean, first of all, you have the, the issue of uh, identifying if it really is fake news or coordinated inauthentic activity is what I think uh, the social media companies call it these days. And then they, these things spring up so quickly, it feels like you're playing whack-a-mole with these sort of operations. But it's good to see that some progress at least is being made. Um, anything else, though, that uh, caught your eye during the conference? Yeah, another common theme at the RSA conference was definitely zero trust. So again, something around trust. And I don't mean having zero trust in a product that it actually will work, but rather the zero trust architecture, which kind of means that no one is trusted by default. Uh, so regardless of if they're inside or outside your network, and therefore maintaining strict access controls with least privileges and verification for every user or device as well, trying to gain access to some resources. So probably simplified, you can say it's the principle of never trust, always verify, uh, which is not so new. I think the term was actually first uh, coined by um, an analyst from Forrester Research in 2010. But over the years, as expected, the term is kind of laid out differently by various vendors. And hence, uh, I guess it doesn't come as a surprise that many of the presentations started with defining what they actually understand and mean by the, by the term of zero trust. But in general, I'd say it usually means something that the, the classical perimeter disappears, which definitely makes sense if you think about all the cloud services that work already with your data and where the user probably directly connects to it uh, from any device that they might have, like their smartphones. But it's also not as simple as a product that you can install and forget. It's more a concept or a design model 
that definitely needs to be implemented in your organization. So it needs to be able to verify the context of each access request, uh, verify the requester, and then assign lease privileges uh, if it gets granted at all, which of course means you give the user only as much access as they actually need for the current task. Uh, it can also mean that you do micro segmentations of the network into various zones, and then this can help further in stopping lateral movement or in deciding if you need to trigger a new access request. And on top of that, of course, since strict access control is a major part of zero trust, multi-factor authentication does play a core role as well, together with proper logging and audit trail, which of course need to be in place as well. Yeah, zero trust is one of those things that's really seemed to gain a lot of traction recently. There's um, a lot of people talk about it, a lot of people excited by it, and it seems to be one of those big ideas whose time may have come. Now, for those of you who are interested in learning more about Semantic's view on um, zero trust, uh, we'd recommend the um, RSA conference presentation from Nico Pop with the title, How to Apply a Zero Trust Model to Cloud Data and Identity. Um, he discusses the future of cloud security for unmanaged devices and how to secure their access to cloud services. Now, let's move on, Kanda, because I can't believe we haven't mentioned this already because uh, you actually had a presentation yourself on IoT threats. How did that go? Yeah, um, I did, and it was definitely a great experience. Um, I definitely liked it, um, as I always do, I guess. Um, as you mentioned, the presentation was on IoT threats, um, or probably more precise on how are attackers profiting from compromised IoT devices. And the premise of my talk was that we always hear about new stories, um, how a IoT product XYZ can easily be hijacked or hacked and that search engines like Binary Edge or Shodan list thousands of exposed devices. But then we rarely discuss what actually are those devices used for once they are compromised, right? So we have discussed various attack vectors before and there were many uh, conference presentations as well at RSA uh, about how those devices get compromised, like default credentials or weak passwords, which have been a well-known weak point for years. Uh, the same, of course, holds true for unpatched vulnerabilities that can be easily remotely exploited by malware, but also LAN attacks such as DNS rebinding or universal plug and play, or, or even supply chain risks should definitely not be forgotten. Um, if you look at our recent Internet Security Threat Report, the ISTR, we actually talk about the IoT threat landscape in more details. And on our honeypot, we registered uh, more than 5,200 unique attacks per month. And if we check out what devices are actually attacking us, we see that 75%, so the majority, came from infected uh, routers, followed by connected cameras with 15% and multimedia devices with 5%. On the other hand, of course, more and more IoT devices are actually uh, bought and installed at home. So um, that kind of adds to the whole sea of potential targets. And if we take the telemetry from our Norton Core products, we see that um, an average of six connected IoT devices were installed on households in the US alone. So more and more devices being out there. And now the question is, what are cyber criminals actually using these devices for if they manage to compromise it? So looking at the top three IoT threats, um, we see that DDoS attacks is the most common payloads at the moment. Um, the top three threats 
course, are Light Hydra and Caton, both making up about 31% of all the attacks we see, and then followed by the Mirai with 16%, and they all do have some kind of DDoS capabilities. Um, such attacks are quite easy to do, right? But they actually only generate about five to ten thousand US dollars revenue per month for the attackers. They are usually rented out as uh, so-called booter or stressor tools um, or services, which of course could then also be used for uh, extortion attacks. But that's not the kind of the big money in there, right? Another common assumption that we also see is, of course, that the devices are misused for crypto coin mining. And this definitely has been true for, let's say, the beginning of 2018, uh, quite popular at the time. But unfortunately, the price of cryptocurrencies, specifically for Monero, have fallen a lot. Monero fell by about 87% last year. So that means, of course, the profitability of an attack fell drastically as well. And I mean, just take one example. So I looked at the hide and seek botnet, uh, which focuses on IoT as well. And they only generated about um, Monero coins worth of $25 per month this year. And that's definitely not the huge payout that you want as a cyber criminal, right? Of course, that was only for a few thousand bots. But even if you talk about larger IoT botnets that might have a few hundred thousand bots, we're still only gaining about a few hundreds or a few thousand dollars per month. So not the big thing. Crypto coin mining might still work for other machines like servers and laptops, but it's not the main thing for IOTs. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, of course, attackers still love crypto coin mining as it's quite simple. Although uh, the CoinHive script actually announced that they will shut down this month. So we'll see if they kind of move to something else and there are some alternatives. And on the other hand, it's still kind of easy to cash out. It's anonymous. So they probably hold on to it because it's simple to do. And maybe some cyber criminals are speculating or hoping that the crypto winter will actually soon be over and the coins will rise again in value. We don't really know, but uh, let's see what happens there. But those two examples, so DDoS and crypto coin mining, kind of highlight that the profits have definitely dropped with the classical attack scenario. And hence, attackers are definitely interested in new possible, possible ways to actually profit from compromised IoT devices. So during my talk at RSA, I described the 12 likeliest scenarios and of course discussed the pros and the cons for the cyber criminals on how they could make money out of it. It probably would blow the time of this podcast um, to go over all the different scenarios in details, um, but I can go over quickly and kind of highlight what I actually called out as a scenario. Yeah, yes, please. I mean, I think it would be really helpful because um, a lot of people would probably only be really familiar with one or two at most. Um, but for the full details, um, listeners can check out your presentation, which has already been posted online on the um, RSA conference website. Yes, absolutely. Um, so back to the 12, I already mentioned DDoS attacks, as I said, easy to do, kind of a low to medium payout. Um, Probably worth mentioning as well that there's a few IoT protocols that can be used for amplification attacks in DDoS as well. So that's something to look out as, uh, as well. Then there's uh, spam attacks, so sending spam emails, but also including spamming uh, printers, smart speakers, or kind of any of the 
new technology, which you could uh, use and actually have been used to kind of place a few advertisements as well. But there's not much profit in those, uh, although they're quite simple to do. Uh, next would be the crypto coin mining, already mentioned, not so profitable on IoT devices. You can, of course, attack the router and then indirectly have any other device, which is uh, browsing the internet, kind of mine for you. But then it's not done on the IoT itself. So we will see if there will be a shift. Probably depends on the, the value of cryptocurrency for the end of this year. Another possible scenario are kind of ransomware or locker types of malware. Um, but they won't work for all different device classes. I mean, just imagine, would you pay $500 to unlock a $5 light bulb? Probably not. Um, definitely you shouldn't because you're probably just going to buy a new light bulb if you actually figure out that it has been locked in the first place. Because, well, it's just going to flicker a little bit so you don't really know what's happening. But it could work for more expensive devices, maybe a self-driving car. If that's going to be locked, you might pay a few bucks to actually get it back. Um, there's, of course, something which is similar, which is the blackmail or extortion attacks. So people can misuse information from those devices. Uh, they might sell the information back to you or sell it to someone else. And yeah, with the amount of private data being kind of more and more shared and growing, there's definitely some concern that that could be an option for the future. Uh, we also seen a few pranks or nuisance threats. Uh, we talked about people logging into uh, connected cameras and then kind of making pranks over the microphone. That's still growing because it's so easy to uh, conduct, but there's not really any profit in it. They're just doing it for the laughs. So that's not what the majority of cyber criminals will go after. Uh, next on the list are information stealing. So those IoT devices rarely have credit cards being entered directly onto it. It's rather done on a smartphone or a web front end. But some of them might have a kind of a token for social media or maybe a password that you need to use. And if that one gets leaked, well, it's just yet another data breach. So maybe that information that can be used, used to attack something else. And that could be profitable for the attackers. The next scenario is one which is actually very often overlooked, although it's very profitable. And that's the click fraud or ad fraud. So when IoT devices are used to kind of secretly in the background click on advertisements or view videos and therefore generating advertisement money for the attackers. We have seen that in the past already, also with IoT devices. And it can definitely generate a few ten thousands of dollars per month for the attackers. Not so easy to set up, but definitely something which is growing. Again, also uh, among the whole propaganda and disinformation. So where bots are created for IoT um, on Twitter or maybe on Instagram and then kind of used to amplify some messages as well. Um, premium services like premium text messages or uh, expensive telephone numbers, not so common because a lot of those devices, of course, don't have a telephone line attached to it. So not too much money to be made up directly with them. Network sniffing, another scenario, specifically on routers, we have seen that. So they're listening in to all the traffic going by. Well, at the moment, yes, there's still the chance of uh, trapping a few credentials and then maybe using those for further attacks. But 
with the increase of encryption like SSL, of course, it gets more and more difficult to actually find something interesting passing by on the network. So that will be diminishing uh, in the value for the attackers as well. Um, something which is a huge concern for enterprise customers is, of course, infected IoT devices, which will then attack other devices in your network. So kind of pivoting through it. And that's a, quite a difficult one to tackle because you might clean up your laptop again, but five minutes after, maybe your CCTV camera actually infects the laptop because it hasn't been patched or they still have the same domain admin password sneaked out. So finding those hidden or dormant infections in your network might become more cumbersome for the future. And I guess last but not least, a proxy network as another scenario. And it's quite simple to do as well. A lot of routers and other uh, devices have those functionalities built in. So you just switch on a SOX5 proxy or something like that. And then you can use the IoT device to either hide your origin for future attacks or misuse the IPs for click fraud, as I mentioned, uh, for credential stuffing, so trying to log in with stolen credentials on many, many social network platforms or create any of those uh, Twitter bots, Instagram bots, and so on. So quite flexible and therefore also interesting for cyber criminals. Wow, that's uh, an awful lot of scenarios there. And I kind of get the feeling that with some of them, at least um, cyber criminals haven't completely teased out the possibilities that may be there for them. But as um, the IoT world grows, we may see more and more taking an interest in uh, trying to exploit it in various different ways, as you've outlined there. Um, now, while we're on the subject of IoT, um, 5G mobile networks are, I think, one of the big things looming on the horizon for this space. Um, so will that change the landscape for IoT as well? Um, what, what's your take on 5G? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the introduction of 5G was mentioned actually multiple times during the conference as well. And I think everybody agrees that this will definitely change the IoT world in the future and probably a few other scenarios as well. Um, just think about all the IoT devices that might have or will get some built-in 5G connectivity in the future, right? I mean, having a fast internet connection without relying on a nearby Wi-Fi can definitely be quite useful for a few applications at least. But this also means that uh, the device will probably be connected directly to the internet or at least directly to the provider's uh, internet. So any firewall you might have on your home network, like your router, will definitely not help you here. Um, therefore, a lot more devices might become directly exposed to the hackers. And that means that stuff like the weak credentials should definitely be avoided in the future. And it's, it's not just the smart home gadgets, right? Uh, Self-driving cars are an obvious candidate for 5G. Um, a lot of them definitely will integrate that in the future, but also medical devices or robots in manufacturing lanes and so on. So a lot of devices out there, but honestly, I do have my doubts that all of these devices will apply kind of a zero trust model, if you want, uh, and protect the devices from su sufficiently from any attackers out there. Well, I guess we will see. Yeah, we will. Um, at least we're talking about it now, so hopefully that'll raise uh, some awareness of the potential um, risks associated with um, direct connection to mobile networks. Now, I, I think you've been quite busy at RSA because uh, I also heard you did a live form jacking demo at the Semantic booth. Yeah, they kept me busy, uh, but you know me, I, I like it that way. 
Um, so at the semantic booth, we had a theme which was all around the question, what can happen in seven minutes? And the idea behind it was, or kind of started with the NotPetya wiper attack that brought down a multi-billion dollar company in just seven minutes. So this is definitely a good example to highlight that it sometimes does not take long time for a devastating attack to unfold. So therefore, we wanted to show the visitors what other cyber attacks could actually be conducted in seven minutes. And of course, there was a challenge. You could win some prizes as well. On my side, I decided to show a form jacking attack since I find those attacks quite fascinating. And I think we talked about this type of attack before on the podcast, right? Groups like uh, Magecart making the headlines. And we still see some new techniques being tried out by those groups. Um, for example, just recently, instead of sending out the data in a post request through the Fetch API, we have seen some groups adding a hidden image request to the HTML page, and the data would then be passed as an argument to the URL. And then immediately after the image gets loaded, it is removed from the, um, the HTML page, so the image tag is removed. And of course, that results in the same um, results, so the data is stolen, but it's a different method. But back to my attack demo, so I, well, made a quite simple attack. Um, all the attacker needs is, well, a way to upload a malicious JavaScript to the e-commerce website, right? So in my demo, I used a weak third-party supplier to compromise a visitor counter script. So one of those JavaScripts that counts how many visitors you have on your website. And by simply brute forcing the access account of that service provider, I was able to inject my form jacking script into that um, visitor counter, which would then, of course, once uploaded, automatically be loaded by the online shop that I have prepared, which then, um, well, uses the visitor counter for one side, but also would use my form jacking in the background. And from that point on, all form fields would be gathered and sent to my drop server, kind of resulting in stolen credit card numbers. So the attack is, of course, quite simple, as I said, but it's a good way to start the conversations and kind of show how easy it is. And I had many people uh, coming up after me, uh, after the talk, asking me questions on how best to protect themselves from form jacking. And of course, we had a few other demos at the booths uh, from lateral movements in Active Directory to exposed S3 data buckets as well. So lots of different um, views to give you some ideas what you actually should look for and protect against. All right. And of course, that's just a flavor of what happened at RSA this year. Um, there was a lot more topics covered by various presentations from soft topics such as how to prevent burnouts to practical applications of the MITRE attack framework and threat hunting. So uh, for any of our listeners who have had their interest peaked, most of the RSA conference presentations are already online available for free, either as video recordings or slide decks. And uh, check out the conference website for details. Uh, that's um, rsaconference.com. <coughs> that is all about we have uh, time for this week. Uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all future episodes. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen Intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. 
We'll be back again next week when we'll be talking to a special guest, Neil Jenkins of the Cyber Threat Alliance. The CTA is a really exciting cross-industry group where most of the major players in cybersecurity have come together to share information and intelligence, working together to help better protect our customers. So don't miss out on that one. But until then, thank you and goodbye. Thank you.